Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name's Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts. We have a very special guest with us today, Arve Sarteau, who is the former founding senior partner of Carval Investors, private equity firm that you'll hear more about in a minute. Arve, say hello to the people. Hey, good morning, everyone, or afternoon, or whatever it may be where you are. Excited to be here. Well, Arve's got an amazing story, as you can maybe tell from his confusion on time zones and his name, he is uh, a, a global citizen. And so, Arve, let's just get right into it. Uh, we usually start with kind of your background as a kid. Where did you grow up? What was your family like? If there's a faith journey, maybe share a little of that with us. Sure. So I, I grew up in France. So I grew up uh, about an hour outside of Paris in kind of a semi-rural part of France. and. Uh, Really very middle-class upbringing. My grandparents were cleaners and bus drivers and hairdressers, and uh, my parents did not finish high school either one, so my brother and I were the first one to go through high school. But my parents always placed a very high value on education. You know, For example, my mom was like the number two employee on the ground in a newly started insurance company, and put herself through night school and ended up running the whole administration with over a thousand people under her. So, and my dad did the same. He was an assistant pharmacist and uh, he was also a passionate fisherman. And so he had a second career after retirement as a civil servant overseeing the river ecology for a large part of the country. So that they view education as being the main tool for you know, making a life for yourself. So that's kind of how I grew up, kind of a protected way. And uh, we ended up, my brother and I, uh, getting great degrees in in engineering, ended up with a master's in electrical engineering. So did all that in France, that kind of classical education was Latin and Greek and that sort of thing. So that's a, now this is fascinating, right? Where do you think the uh, focus on education came from for your folks? Where, where do you think that motivation came from? I think it, it stems from two things. The first one is they themselves didn't get to have a higher education, even though they had the intellectual capacity, but being born after the war and having to get to work to make a living kind of cut that short. I think the second part is, and, and we'll come back to that, but they're both non-believers. And so as non-believers, uh, the way to get somewhere in the world or to define a purpose for yourself, a lot of it then hangs on to that sort of attribute. Right. And so now they sent you to some pretty amazing schools, didn't they? Yeah. So, I mean, the French system is kind of a, a very accessible for people who don't have any money, which is an inter- interesting uh in my situation, it was very helpful. So master's in electrical engineering, and then I started uh, my career after that. Started, went to work. I didn't really want to be an engineer after having studied engineering for six years. So then I, I went into consulting kind of right after that. All, I'd lived my whole life in France up to this point. 
Uh, I've traveled with my parents to other countries within Europe that would take long vacations every year and go to different countries, but I've never lived anywhere else. I didn't learn English until university. So it's really when I started my career, my first job was with Anderson Consulting. That's when I started to get exposed to the Anglo-Saxon culture. You know, came to the U.S. for trading. I think I was probably 23 at the time for a couple of weeks and got kind of my first taste of what the, the U.S. was like. So that, that, that was the, the initial uh, arrival into the U.S. just for a short stint. And then I went back to, to uh, France working still for in consulting and I worked with them in Switzerland and had all sorts of very interesting early educational projects to work on for the horse racing association for the uh, French Olympics, the Winter Olympics, uh, for uh, the French Stock Exchange. I mean, a, a variety of initial experiences in my career that were kind of uh, widening my understanding of business. Was so, was you, so the first time you came to the U.S., was it for training for Accenture or Anderson Consulting at the time I, it was named? Yeah, exactly. So they, they they brought everybody from all around the world to St. Charles, Illinois. Yeah. And, you know, you'd be there for like three or four weeks and you'd had kind of this uh, cultural immersion. Yes. And, and it was fun. It was, right. you'd met, you'd meet people from all around the world. I mean, I, you know, met people from Australia and, you know, from Indonesia and whatnot. It was, it was great. And uh, and I've been there because I was on the audit side with Arthur Anderson okay. back in those days, and uh, and that is an interesting. That was an interesting place. Uh, and then they brought you back. So where were you based uh, with Anderson Consulting? So I was based out of Paris, and okay. and then from there I they sent me to work for a private bank in Switzerland for about a year, and then eventually I asked them to find a project for me in the U.S. I wanted to come back to the U.S. and say, hey, there's something that I could do over there. And so they sent me to Chicago to work on an internal software development project for about a year and a half. And so that was kind of a big first shift, a big milestone for me, moving to the U.S. And this is where I met my future wife, so Jennifer and I met in Chicago. That was in, uh, in 87. The timing was uh, kind of challenging for me personally. My brother had passed away literally two months before I moved to Chicago. Wow. So uh, my brother was just 12 months older than me. We grew up together. I skipped grade, so we were in the same grade. We did everything together, and then he died in a mountain climbing accident. So I, I, I landed in the U.S. at a time that uh, kind of made me question a lot of things about life. A lot of things about my upbringing, about what it means. And uh, so I meet my wife, Jennifer, future wife, and she herself had been in a slightly similar journey in the sense that she had lost her brother um, to suicide, actually, a few years before that. And she was in a journey of reconnecting with her faith and kind of searching also what faith meant to her. Uh, so that was for me really the seed of questioning my upbringing as an atheist and getting to know and meet Christians and people who had a 
relationship with Christ meant absolutely nothing to me at that time. Because that was the beginning of the journey. Yeah, you've shared with me before we started recording a little, the uh, maybe just describe for those, you know, most people listening to this probably don't know exactly what that was like growing up in France and at that time. You know, I think most Americans think of Europe as, you know, maybe being a little less churched. And of course, I think America, unfortunately, is kind of heading in that direction. Uh, but what was that like growing up? How did you think about church or, or Christianity as, as a kid? What did you see that formed your opinion? Yeah. So, yeah, France is, is really kind of a poster child for, you know, post-Christian culture. There's probably about 2% of people in France that actively participate in church. So growing up, my parents did it. I was baptized as a kid, you know, as a baby, because that was kind of tradition, but never attended church unless it was for another baptism or a wedding or maybe a funeral. But my parents being atheists, their whole life was built around notions of science and evolution and uh, around the, that notion that anything that had to do with faith was, was basically made up. So when you come into a culture or a society like the U.S. where it is a big part of not just life, but a really big part of what people talk about in certain circles anyway, you've got to question all that. And uh, so my journey, which took you know multiple years, was made of bringing down barriers and walls that I had to put down before I could rebuild on a new foundation. So that started there. It really, really took shape after that. So we moved back to France, got married there, still working for Anderson, then went back to business school at INSEAD, which you know kind of portrays itself as the Harvard of Europe. And then after that, I joined Hewlett Packard in Switzerland went to work for HP uh, to do M&A and strategy for them. And there, I promised when we got married to my wife that I would come along with her to church and that I, we would raise our children, you know, in the faith if she wanted to. And so she joined a church called Crossroads, which was a non-dimensional uh, English-speaking church outside of Geneva. And a uh, small community, and there I just met the most wonderful people. And uh, got to really have deep conversation with them, understand, you know, what they were talking about. All of a sudden, that was not a coded language, but it was really revealed to me as uh, something that gave complete sense to life that couldn't find elsewhere. Gave complete sense to life. I like that phrase, you know, and decoded it for you. So it sounds like, Jennifer, even though you had both had kind of these traumatic experiences with a sibling passing, you know, that's a, that's, that's a pretty uncommon experience for a young adult to have a sibling pass away like that. So that sounds like you had that in common, but sounds like she was seeking and kind of found it. Was she sort of raised in that tradition? So maybe it was a little easier for her to lean into that or, you know, yeah. maybe where were you guys on those paths together? Yeah, she was way ahead of me. Yeah, she was very Catholic, and you know her parents and her mom had always had a very strong faith. So for her, it was not something that was uh, new. It was something that she had to rekindle as an adult. 
yeah, the embers were already there. The rekindles a good right. blow on the embers that exist. You didn't really have any embers, it sounded like. Exactly. Yeah. So you find this good church in Switzerland. But I, I would imagine the Swiss culture, I mean, how do you contrast that? Again, uh, you know, not having grown up in Europe, I don't really know those differences right. so much. Was it also very post-Christian? Was Switzerland at the time any more faithful or you just found a good church? Right. I think I think that first Geneva is a bit of an exception because is Geneva is kind of a microcosm. You have about, you know, forty percent of people who live in Geneva are Swiss and sixty percent are not. So you've got a lot of people who are there because they work for big international organizations. A lot of them are headquartered there. Yeah. And then you have substantial immigration as well. And so the Swiss Swiss people are kind of they keep a lot to themselves. It is much more of a conservative, private you know, cultural identity, even though we, we were living in a little village in the middle of a vineyard that was, uh, we lived in, in part of a farm that was against a church where Calvin used to come and preach. Wow. So the setting, the setting was great, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was an international church community that we were part of with a lot of expats, a lot of people who came from okay. a lot of different places. Yeah. Okay. So a kind of a nice melting pot. Maybe maybe a little bit halfway in between your American experience and your European upbringing. Maybe that, that seems like a fairly comfortable place maybe for you to learn. That's right. And, and grow. So so that happens. And so take us, what are you doing for HP? How long are you at HP? Yeah, so I was at HP for two years, really. Two full years there. Our daughter was born there. Our son was born uh, during business school. And uh, so I was doing M&A projects and strategy projects for them for all of their various European divisions. So, you know, it, it was working on a variety of projects and deals and things of financial nature combined with some of my, you know, background in electrical engineering and software and whatnot. So it was a good, it was a good place to be, learned a lot. Wanted to move back to the U.S. with young kids thinking, we're probably going to settle in France. And before we do that, it'd be good to give them exposure to the U.S. for a couple of years. So tried to move back to the U.S. with HP. That didn't happen. This was 1993, and they were you know laying, laying off people in the U.S., in the Bay Area in particular. So that was not a good time to move over. So I moved from HP to Cargill. Cargill is based in Minneapolis, where my wife is from, which is very convenient. And um, they had a group that uh, did exactly the same thing in terms of doing M&A and doing strategy. And they were looking for, for people. And so that's how I made the transition back to the U.S. Same kind of role, but in a completely different industry. Yeah. So you get back to Minnesota pretty chilly up there and you're you guys are still living in minnesota now right home base so yeah we're, we're back here yeah, you're, yeah. We're, we're back here you know as you'll hear we've we've done a few other stops along the way yeah. in between and actually before getting to minneapolis for that job cargill sent me to uh england to the welsh i was in the welsh border i was running a poultry factory for them for a full year running a poultry business coming out of the uh high tech was uh, an interesting <laughs> that's a pretty big change from yeah. chips to chickens. That's right. Exactly. But then, at, you know, land up here in Minneapolis and doing those uh, kind of similar kind of things I've been doing. So in my element, 
Uh, but that was only to be short-lived by design, meaning that the program Cargill had was bring people in that area, do that for a couple of years, get to meet the variety of executive people in the company, and then go and run a business. So you knew you were there for a couple of years, but then you had to you know, find something to do within the company where you'd be a, a proper general manager or whatever. So that happened in, uh, in 96, where uh, basically there, there was a proprietary trading arm within Cargill that uh, invested in distress situations and distress financial instrument. France was in a financial crisis, and they wanted somebody to go there and build a business around that um, theme in France. So in um, so in '96, we after two years in Minneapolis, we packed the bags and moved back to Paris to uh, uh, to start that. And uh, so that was really kind of the next step in my career that defined the next. Well, I spent probably about 17 years in that in that sector within uh, within Cargill and its uh, evolutions. Uh, so I'll go, go to Paris, start to build a team, do a lot of transactions, a lot of deal, do a lot of investments. And uh, after a couple of years in Paris, uh, then we moved to London. And uh, from London, uh, start to replicate the same model throughout Europe. Uh, in Germany and in Scandinavia and in Italy, so build up a, a pan-European business around that activity uh, out of uh, outside of London. Uh, we're there for about six years, and six years later, we moved back to the U.S. So that's like 2004 by then. Right. So you've been back and forth, but mostly at this point with Cargill called Carval, and uh, right is that kind of the Sort of private right, trading so, or the private equity arm of Cargill? Yeah. So here, here's kind of it evolved. So through until I moved back to the US in 2004, everything we were doing was a prop trading. It was all Cargill's money. It was called Cargill Value Investment at the time. And then in 2006, uh, there were uh, become a partner within that group. And there's nine partners re- running the business. And at that point, uh, it becomes clear to us that we have a platform to do a lot more than managing Cargill's money. So uh, we go and negotiate with the executive management of Cargill to set up the organization as kind of a standalone company to be run by those partners. And so we can then bring in additional capital from the outside. So that's 2006 by then. And so in 2006, we... uh, we raised our first fund, which was a hybrid private equity slash hedge fund, six and a half billion dollars for our first fund, and uh, then we start to do that independently from Cargill, and that's when Carval came into existence. Okay, so you you basically spin that that off, start doing private equity, some hedge fund stuff. I mean, it's basically just a scaled version of the prop trading you were doing, but maybe with some private equity attached. Is that a Exactly way to look right. at it. Yeah, exactly right. So, you know, we bring investors that come traditional pension fund and endowments and whatnot. And uh, we have a footprint that's around the world. So yeah. we've got a team in Japan, we've got a team in China and Argentina and throughout Europe and so forth and Latin America. And uh, we are 
buying, we're closing probably about 10 transactions a month. So it's a very high velocity. Uh, we invest about $2 billion every year in that space. And it's anything from distress situation in aircraft, in shipping. We are very involved with the Lehman bankruptcy, with Enron, with all of those big situations are part of what we do. And uh, it's you know interesting from a personal standpoint, you realize that all those deals and all those transactions, they're they they're kind of addictive. You know, it's like you're always looking for the next one and trying to see how that's gonna replenish the batteries for for the business, for the for the yeah, team. The dopamine hit of closing the deal to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. So that that continues. So that was 2006, and continued to grow the business. And by 2012, uh, probably starting a little bit before that, 2010, 11, we uh, we hit uh, a few road bumps, not from a return standpoint, but from a, an executive management standpoint. And so at that point in 2012. I'm like, well, you know, either certain things need to change from the way we're all jointly running the business, or I don't see myself in that place going forward. So that is a big, uh, a big moment of decision for me. Yeah, and and are you sort of feeling like at this point in 2012, you're about 49 years old, right? Is that about right? Yeah, yeah, yeah 48. I think if I remember. Yeah, 48, 49, and so. You're trying to decide. I one would assume that after you know eight plus years, you know, the plus being inside a cargo, maybe eight outside. Is that about right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. going at it hard. Few different funds. I'm sure it's grown. Are you kind of feeling uh, sort of financially secure at that point to where you could take some risks, or how, how are you thinking about your own finance? Yeah, I think that's true. So not only if I've find myself being financially secure, uh, but also starting pretty more actively in the early, mid-2000, mid-2000, I would say, uh, getting more involved in terms of nonprofit, uh, you know, writing checks and giving money and being involved with some of the local organizations. My wife is on the board of Habitat for Humanity here in, uh, in the Twin Cities and I'm on their finance committee, and I try to, you know, try to give back in variety of other causes and ways there. So it's kind of a, a decision point. Two thousand twelve. What do I do? And I have a number of friends at this point that have left the organization to go start their own funds. You know, there's plenty of opportunities to do that. And uh, if you remember, it's about that time that that whole movement around effective altruism started to take off. And where people are thinking about, you know, what is the most effective way for me to give back? And, and of course, to keep working and to make as much money as possible so you can give more is one of the options. Yeah. But I'm, ask, I'm asking myself, is that really, is that really the, the, the way I want to do it? Well, is it for you, right? There's a lot of ways to do it. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, somebody running on the treadmill listening to this. And, you know, we do run into people who, you know, they struggle. You had really worked on your faith, it sounds like, and you, you, you're, 
you know, it sounds like there was this management shakeup, sounds like that it was maybe pushing you out a little bit, but you also had a pull from trying mm-hmm. to have more meaning because I'm just imagining, you know, a spin-off private equity firm. I mean, it's not like you got together with three Christian buddies and start a private equity firm. Right. So I'm just imagining the day-to-day work, even though you're trying to be faithful in the way you behave, it's not like it's a overt or, I mean, it's a pretty secular organization. Fair enough. Did you feel a little limited in your ability to have purpose in that job? Yeah, completely. And and I've got a couple of really good friends and some of them were some of my partners at the time that follow the path that's similar to mine or different. It's their own path, but that's that uh, reflects their Christian faith. But it's a completely secular organization, no, no, no question about that. So this is the time when I'm starting to think, well, maybe there's a different way for me. Right. And, and, and what I come up is with this kind of formula, which, you know, now that I look back 10 years later, it's, it's easy to say, oh, that was such a smarter decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the reality is that God has shaped it in a way that, that makes sense for me. And what I said is, okay, I'm going to spend about a third of my time managing my own investments and portfolio and kind of business activity, if you want. Mm-hmm. The third of my time volunteering and being engaged in the nonprofit sector, and then leave the last third open for family and whatever God directs me to do. And I think looking back, what it what it achieved is that saying, hey, a third is kind of the cap on your kind of business, direct business involvement, it forced some discipline and choices as to how much I was going to do in that area and what I chose to do. And keeping a third open for God's direction, it forced me to listen and to respond to him and the excuse of, you know, I'm too busy and that cannot be used as an excuse if you left some time up and forgot to direct. So I, I think that's where I found that it's really helped me to achieve the goals that I wanted to achieve in that way. So financial independence continued and being able to, you know, be generous with my wallet, but the volunteering and the engagement and the openness, as it turns out, is the part that's been by far, you know, the the most valuable in in all of that. You know, you know, the word that comes to mind is margin. You sort of built in this margin, it sounds like. And I I could see I could see uh you maybe wanting to do that. I think that's pretty creative, even even when you weren't sure, maybe as you're making that transition, you're like, hey, okay, I got a little work stuff. I want to maybe spend a little more time with the family and those things, but I'm gonna leave some open uh to figure out what's going on, you know, halftime would tell you, hey, do low-cost probes and don't get too involved. They, You know, most sort of coaches, right, well, they tell you to try to have some margin, but I think it's so simple to get that squeezed out, especially right. over time. Do you still try to maintain that margin today to some extent? Yeah, I, I, I do. I do. And I think that uh, obviously, you know, it's not a rigid a third, a third, a third. It yeah, yeah, of course. It slows depending on the sure, band sure. from different situations. But yeah, I, I try to because there again, I think that it's too easy to go to the things that we're comfortable and familiar with and to fill all your time and space with that. But that doesn't leave any margin or any room for God to grow you 
mm-hmm. in ways that you're either reluctant to grow or you don't even know that you could grow with. So I, I think that's the part where it's been beneficial. And the thing that I've tried to do too, and then I think that uh, when you talk about generosity, yeah, it, it's you know l- let's define that. I think it's it's very straightforward to think about gener- generosity in terms of how much we give of our money, because that's kind of the main resources that we look at and say, hey, well, it's the know, easy scorecard. It's it is the easy scorecard. Yeah, it's got a number attached with a little percentage. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But I think that since we're talking to a lot of people who are financially extremely savvy, we need to define generosity and think about it by looking at the entire financial statements, both the income statement and the balance sheet. Yeah. And, you know, on the income statement side, yes, you have the money that you have, your net income and your time, because I think the time is also something that comes every year as opposed to- It's a scarce uh, resource, you know? Yeah, yeah. But the balance sheet side, meaning all of your assets and all of your skills, how do you also be generous with that? Yeah, what's on your balance sheet, not just financial balance sheet, but maybe time and talent. You know, we talk about time, talent, treasure. Sometimes people add on testimony and other, we can keep going maybe with the alliteration, but- Right. But it's it's your your uh, balance sheet is not just your the traditional financial assets. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think that what it's done for me is realizing that when you use time and talent more than you use your money in certain ways, what it does is that it first it connects you with people with mm-hmm. other believers. It gives you a chance to give and to receive love to others and from others through that interaction. And it makes you an active participant in prayer needs for others. Okay, this so is really, this is really interesting because, uh, not to interrupt you, but I think this, it's kind of like, you've been so intentional about carving out time for things. And, and it's sort of like, it sounds like for you, it's, where God guides you to spend your time. And then it feels like, is it fair to say that your sort of financial resources just sort of follow those passions that he leads? Uh, not so much just a sort of spreadsheet on where to give on an allocation globally. It's a little more where you're, where you're spending your time. Is that where you tend to give the most money? Yeah, absolutely. But I think what I found too is that, you know, God is a God of relationships. Yeah. And I, to him, that's what matters the most. So when you put together the time spent the relationship that you've built with mm-hmm. people, other believers, or that you give to other people that you may not be long-term connected with through prayers or through interaction, it kind of creates this virtuous circle mm-hmm. of getting more and more pulled into that giving and generosity can concept, which is you know more and more satisfying. So that in itself has been very valuable. I think the thing that has allowed to achieve, and I think it'd be true for many, many other business owners or business experts, is that way you do that, you realize that the impact you can have can be sometimes a lot larger than any check you could have written. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, I'll take a quick example of that. When I was involved with Opportunity International for a number of years, so that's a Christian microfinance organization, and I was sitting on uh, numerous boards in Africa, of uh, banks in Africa, and the global board and all that. And, and we had a bank in Serbia, which was in real challenging situation. Uh, the financial structure was upside down. There was a significant amount of money a $10 million owed to USAID that they couldn't repay. It was, it, was, it was just a big mess. And so getting involved, not just on my own, but with the team on the ground and other people from Opportunity, spending the energy and the time restructuring it, renegotiating a variety of things, we ended up generating you know, somewhere around 15 to 20 million of savings and growth for the for that particular bank over the following five to 10. Well, that's not a check I would have ever been able to write. So, and to me, the simple connection, I'm a simple guy. These skills that God, I mean, he planted these, you know, basic skills in you, but you develop them in your business life. I mean, I remember you, you talked about distress. You, you mentioned dist doing distress deals a couple of times. And then you're talking about a distressed bank deal. It just happens to be in a nonprofit setting. But I'm sure a lot of those skills translated. And to your point, a minus 10 to a plus 15 or whatever the number was, you, you weren't going to write a $15 million check, but you could, you could affect a $15 million change by your efforts with a team and it also and have that satisfaction of the relationships. Is that kind of what it's sort of this yep. flywheel? Isn't that kind of what you've called it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly a flywheel effect where you, you start to compound various components and, and the, the impact is, is magnified. So I think that's one thing that I, when I have those conversations with, you know, some of my friends who are thinking through their career plan and really younger guys that I've been in, in touch with over the years is, is to help them th think through the fact that there are so many different path to having an impact for God. And everybody tends to be focused on the, their business and, you know, how do I grow it? And yeah, I, I remember when I was in, in the UK for that one year where I managed this poultry business for Cargill, I had uh, a general manager that ran the overall business while I was there. And, and the one thing that he told me always stuck with me, he said, what's, you ask the question and somebody gives you an answer. You need to keep asking why at least three times until you can really get to the true underlying answer to your question. And I asked myself, you know, why do we have a business and why do we want to grow a business? Well, you know, what I'm doing impacts people for their life. They can, whether it's a cheaper car or healthier diet or why it may be. What's that? Well, why? Why do people need a cheaper car? And why do they need a healthier diet? Well, so they can have a better life. And But why? And at the end of the day, the only true answer to that is that they may be able to glorify God. And it that is the only answer that's valid at the end of those iterations of why. So when people are thinking about what do I do next, with my business, it goes straight to the final answer, which is what is the best way for you with your skills, with your means to glorify God the best you can? And 
once you've identified that path that best applied to where you are today, that's probably the direction that God's pointing you to. So keep asking yourself why to get to the root and find the place. So maybe that's a good segue into how we like to close, are they, uh, with, you know, again, I always think about it like uh, like we were talking before we started recording that it's, it's, this is a conversation just like we're having lunch and letting our friends listen in, and I hope they're blessed to hear your story. But, you know, we're just a couple of business guys talking to some other business folks about how to best do what you're describing. And, mm-hmm. you know, what we're, what we're trying to do is, you know, we don't want them to stop walking the dog and say, oh, well, that was nice, nice story. but what do you think uh, is a practical tip uh, that, that somebody could apply tomorrow uh, that's in business to kind of further their journey in this way? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So before I jump to that, I'm going to say one more thing in terms of where it's led me to today. Yeah, good. And where I'm spending some of my time today. Yeah. I think I, we've mentioned, we talked about that before, spending quite a amount of time with an organization called Talenton, which is basically an impact investment fund where we're trying to create job in the developing world and uh, develop leaders and uh, disciples uh, to, uh, to impact their lives by financing their businesses. So it goes back to the notion of being generous is a form of worship. And you need to worship with your entire balance sheet in my you know, kind of figurative speech, but also in the literal speech, meaning that you know, there are trillions of assets sitting on donor advice funds and private foundations around the U.S. that are essentially not invested in alignment with their mission. And that's where I think impact investment can have a huge role into bringing more people in a situation in their lives where worshiping God and giving glory to Him can be a, a higher priority in, on, on their list simply because you know their survival is uh, is become easier uh, so that that's the that's the first thing for me today it's kind of where I've found kind of that sweet spot for both my my skills and my time but as far as you know where to start and people are, are wondering how do I do that where do I start my encouragement would be pick something that you're really passionate about so that it shows, and so that passion is kind of contagious. And then through that, show joy, show joy. And I was just uh, attending a, a, uh, a gathering of the, that was a, the Catholic uh, Community Foundation here in Minneapolis a few weeks ago, and somebody, one of the speakers said, remember that joy, the J stands for Jesus, the O stands for others, and the Y comes last, and that stands for yourself. And so engage into something where you put yourself last, and then the joy will, will show through that. Oh, man, I love those priorities. Joy, Jesus, others, and yourself last as, as priorities. So find that passion point, show the joy, and understand where it, where it comes from. I love that. And let, and let God do the rest. Well, Arve, this has been a whole lot of fun. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your story and wisdom with us today. Thank you. All right. And thanks, everybody, for listening to the 
uh, Generous Business Owner Podcast. Please leave us your ratings and reviews and pass it to your friends. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.